Well, it's been really cold, hasn't it? Oh, it's it? been dang cold. Isn't it great? It's time for it to warm up just a little bit. Did you know that I have a, a friend, a dog? They say man's best friend. Mm -hmm. My dog's a very good friend, and, and he was on Science Live a year ago. His name's Kiva, and he's a German shepherd. And Kiva loves the cold. <laughs> I, I think he was born where they have, you know, horse-drawn sleds or something. <laughs> I think so too. But when it gets cold and it's freezing cold and it snows, he turns into a different creature. Is he bound? Oh, yeah, he just <laughs> loves it. And I watched him, and I'm saying, <laughs> and when I saw how much he enjoyed it, mm -hmm. I thought, you know what, it's, it's about attitudes. <laughs> and so I decided, starting right now, I'm going to enjoy it. If you're dressed right, it's a lot more enjoyable. Do you know that if you have the right attitude, however you're dressed, <laughs> makes a difference. It's true. It really does. That is true. So I started enjoying the cold. It was healthy for you, too. It, 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 <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but it's not as cold if you enjoy it. It's not. Mm -hmm. No. And it's actually quite pretty. You know, the, the chiefs had a cold test. They did. Mm -hmm. We brought a really good football team in from Florida. <laughs> didn't warm up our weather they, any, They don't it? have a lot of uh, snow down there. Mm -mm. And so to have a home field advantage, we played the game at six degrees below zero. Shit, it's cold. They said, we don't want to win that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but... Mr. Mahomes, our quarterback, mm -hmm. he was out there. He didn't have anything over his ears, and he was just like, hey, this is just a football game. I thought, what a great attitude. That's true. If minus six degrees, whoa, that's 38 degrees colder than freezing water. Yeah, it's pretty If cold. that cold is just a game, what an attitude of how to handle opposition or affliction mm -hmm. or whatever. And so I decided, hmm, I'm going to enjoy okay. the diversity of, of weather that we're enjoying. And in Missouri, we have nice warm summers, chilly, chilly, chilly cold winters, especially it seems in January. And then they're over early, and we have a nice spring and a nice fall. And I decided that... Uh, Having that difference in seasons is really fun. It's really enjoyable. It doesn't get boring. Makes it beautiful. Yeah, so having an attitude like that does make a difference. And you know, that's true in just almost all aspects of life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. That's our social lesson right there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, I'm going to clip that and put that in the next she course. She tricked me into doing her lesson. <laughs> I'm going to use that. That's wild. Okay, now, uh, since it's January and we're rushing through this nice cold winter weather, uh -huh. it's time to start thinking very seriously about the science fair. And for some of you, ladies and guys, um, the dancing robots are part of the science fair. We had some amazing dancing robots last year. And some of those, I could tell they've been working on since January. It's a good time That's to right. start getting ready for the science fair. And remember, 
you don't have to have an actual robot to be able to program a robot because in a cellus, the robot can be done uh, in the computer and you can see it, and then when you get a robot, you can have, have the robot. Okay, <laughs> we have an interruption. Yeah, I think. Um, you guys give me just a minute. I'm having an issue with Christina. <laughs> uh, Christina would like to show you my dog. Okay. Would that be okay just yeah, for a second? Okay, that. Tina, let's see what you got. There he is. He loves the snow. <laughs> the snow is Found. fun. Yeah, there he is. What a good example. What a wonderful example he is. Okay, now we were talking about the dance contest and the science fair. Now, the how can a dance contest be part of a science fair? Well, because to make these robots dance is kind of the same thing as trying to get R51 to do something. By the way, we had several sightings of R51 this we week. We did, a lot yeah, of places. Now I know that he's a pilot. Yeah. And we've, we've seen him in several places. He must be flying because he's getting around a lot. Um, but the other half of the science fair are the projects where students do science fair. And I'm going to talk a little bit more today about Mr. Bill Lear. I'd like to just show you a picture of Bill Lear. Bill Lear was my wonderful mentor. And here he is with his project, his science project, the Learjet, in the background. <coughs> Mr. Lear walked into my life and completely changed it. And I, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about him today. But before I do, I want to come back to the science fair. Um, it's time to decide whether or not you're going to do a science fair project. And you know, I'm, I'm pretty upfront about the fact that the purpose of science life is to make you want to study. I like that. <laughs> that was good. It was a science thing. <laughs> to make you want to study. And why? Because you see the benefit, the potential of what you can do by, by developing your mental ability and your knowledge in your brains. So, we had a, a student that uh, applied for a scholarship just a few weeks ago. Uh, well, actually, I guess he applied a few months ago, but a few weeks ago, he heard back from the university that he had applied to. And the university that he wanted to go to was MIT, one of my favorite schools. Mm. And he applied, and they didn't accept him, but they have him on their, their waiting list, so they may still accept him. And um, his, his father called us and spoke with our, our Joshua about um, could Joshua do something to put in a positive word or something. So Joshua called MIT on behalf of the student to see if we could kind of let them know how great he was, etc. And the, uh, the official at MIT said something really interesting. He said, well, first of all, to apply, you need to have very good grades. We have a lot of students with 4.0 or nearly 4.0, very good grades, and this student does. And he says, but at MIT, we get so many applications 
from students with perfect grades that you have to have something more. And Joshua said, well, more like what? And he says, well, like something you've done. For example, a science fair. <laughs> and uh, just think about that. Science fair is how I was able to earn my scholarship to the university. I'm sure glad I did it. And besides that, it was really fun. Science fair could be a key that would open a door for you when you're applying for a job. So it can be a really, really a big thing. But those aren't the two best reasons to do the science fair. The best reason to do the science fair is because of how enjoyable it is. And if you want your science fair to be enjoyable, well then you have to do it the right way. It's like, if I'm going to enjoy these freezing cold temperatures, then I have to do it the right way. And the right way is I have to get the right attitude, I bundle up good. Uh, I have a long driveway where I live, and it's steep. It's up a big hill, a long driveway. And so, as I was getting ready for the snow to come, because I knew it would, I was very fortunate to get a bobcat bobcat machine and it's a machine with a big snow blower and you get inside close the door turn on the heat <laughs> I love it. Mm -hmm. and then you fire up this snow blower and uh, when I was picking out the snow blower that I was going to get uh, I found one that was made by not by the bobcat company but it's for a bobcat it would fit on a bobcat and the ad advertisement said this snowblower will blow snow into the next county. <laughs> Does it do it? Yeah, and it, it's got a thing on top, that a little chute, and I control it with my thumb, and it turns around so I can shoot the spray at whichever neighbor I'm mad at. <laughs> but you don't get mad at the neighbors, right? And so I just <laughs> drive the bobcat, Anyway, uh, so yesterday morning we had our third big snow of the season and now my only regret is that I have such a short driveway. <laughs> so you ordered the snow to try well, that Well, you see, <laughs> so what I did, uh -huh. because I have such a sh short driveway, I pushed the street out there for the oh, neighbors too. Mm. Actually, that was very kind yeah, of you. Actually, but it, it is amazing that when you have the technology all figured out and invented, then you can do marvelous things. Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the key to having a science fair project that will really change your life. You need to do your science fair project, and I consider this R1's number one rule for the science fair. The project you do must be something you love. You, you just got to love it. That's more important than it's going to impress the judges, more important than it's going to do anything. It's got to be something you are passionate about. Now, most of you figured out by now, Elon Musk is not my cousin. <laughs> I just call him that because I have, I've never met him, but I just am so proud of 
his science fair projects. You know he's got a science fair projects where he shoots SpaceX up into the sky? <laughs> yeah, and he has another high, uh, pro science fair project where he makes cars run on electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's like they're all science fair projects, but they're things that he feels passionately about. And when you really, really love something, you can spend a lot of hours doing it, and it's not, it's not pain, it's fun. Yeah. So what are you excited about? What are you really interested in? Now some say, well, I'm interested in the stars, but you know, I don't have any for my science project. <laughs> yes, you do. You've got Uncle Hubble, right? And Uncle James Webb. You've got two telescopes floating around up there, and you have access to the pictures that are coming down from those every day. There are so many things that we can get into in our wonderful world. It's, it's a world like it's never been before. I mean, we never had telescopes floating around. We had some on the ground, and you had to look up through the atmosphere, which was kind of hard. But now, there they are, and the results are being shared with everyone. So what are you really interested in? I, I think you start with that. And a wonderful science fair project would be to learn everything about the James Webb Telescope, or even about little brother, the Hubble. To, to learn about the telescope, how it was built, what it does, the photographs it's taking, the discoveries it's, it's making. The Hubble has made so many discoveries, and James Webb is much newer, but it's already made many, many discoveries. So just learning about those two wonderful instruments and what they've done would be wonderful science fair projects. So don't think that you have to change the whole world with your first science fair project. Your early science fair projects are to change you. They're to get you engaged in science and to start developing your creative powers. And when your creative powers become superpowers, it's because you've really used them, you've practiced. And that's how Superman did it. He practiced oh. every time he flew, yeah. Okay. All right, so now another way to look at the science fair project, especially as you start getting a little bit older, then you can start taking on a science fair question. And you're going to make up the question. It's something that you're interested in. For example, here's my example of a science fair question. Imagine that, that you're up early and, and you're having your breakfast and you pour yourself a nice bowl full of cereal, okay? Pour some milk on it and you're eating it and you're looking, think, thinking about the science fair like I know you do all the time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this question comes bursting out through your brain that says, I wonder how much iron is in my cereal. Yeah. So you go over and you get the box and you look on there and it says it's fortified with iron. What does fortified mean? It means that they didn't think they had enough so they put some more in. Mm -hmm. And you thought to yourself, iron. Do you know what iron likes? Iron likes magnets. 
And so you go get your biggest magnet out. <laughs> this is the part you wait for your mother to go in the other room. <laughs> Sorry, mother. Then you dump your cereal, milk and everything, into a Ziploc bag, zip it up, and then you mush it around real good. Mush, 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 mush. Then you get out your biggest magnet and you start fishing for iron. And you go over it like this, around, 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 around. And when you pull the magnet off, there is a little collection of iron. Yeah, iron flakes. They fortify cereal with iron by just taking these iron flakes and throwing their heat that. <laughs> and your body, your body digests that and it puts iron back into your system. Do you know that every body has iron in their body? That's a bodily statement, isn't it? Everybody's body has iron in it. But do you know how much iron you have? Some people have less than they should, and that's not good. Mm -hmm. But have you seen a steel nail before? Mm -hmm. Just a nail. The human body has the equivalent of about two nails worth of steel. <laughs> R51 has more. <laughs> kind of right He's up here. He's fortified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So an interesting science for a project would be to see what foods are fortified with iron and can you really find the iron? If it's iron and it's in that food and you got a magnet, the magnet will find it for you. There it is. <laughs> I know what they're doing. They're putting iron in the food. That's a science fair project. Here's another question that someone might ask. Magnets are really interesting, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> I have wondered many, 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 many times how it is that when I push my hand down on the table, it stops, it doesn't go right through the table. You say, well, of course it does, but no, wait a minute. My hand is made up of atoms. And atoms are little specks of electrons and a teeny little nucleus in the middle, but they're mostly just space. So why doesn't it just go through? And the force that, that we hit when we walk on the floor or we step somewhere, I'm told, is more like the force that you get when you have a magnet north pole and a magnet south pole and you try to push them together. It's an electromagnetic force pushing those atoms apart and, and that's why you don't go through the floor. So let's, let's think about this question. Magnets are really fun, they're interesting. There's a lot to study from them. Many, many, many things have to do with magnets. Has anyone ever heard of a drone? These little drones that fly around? We've all seen them, haven't we? Did you know that when I was young, we couldn't have drones? We couldn't have them. We, not couldn't, allowed. we couldn't have them because the technology did not exist to make a drone. And what technology was missing? We had electricity, we had batteries. But the thing that really was the breakthrough that made drones possible was super powerful magnets. 
Why? Because if you have a really strong magnet, you can make an electric motor that's very powerful and very lightweight. And regular uh, ferrous magnets or iron magnets can be magnets, but they're not really powerful magnets. To make a real powerful magnet, you have to make a magnet out of rare earth materials, neodymium. And so we, we didn't know how to do that then. And that's completely changed our world, hasn't it? Drones and a lot of other neat things are possible. But come back to magnet then. So if you get one of these rare earth magnets that are very powerful, you can do a lot of interesting experiments with it. Well, here's a question. What happens to the strength of a magnet, the amount of magnetism, if a magnet gets cold? That's a question that would be very good for a science fair project. Does temperature change how strong a magnet is? And how could you find out? If you say, well, first of all, you get to come up with a hypothesis. The hypothesis is based on all of your knowledge, what do you think the answer is? And if you're making a hypothesis in this day and age, you probably want to search on the internet a little bit to learn more about it. So you come up with a hypothesis. Let's say that we think that when a magnet gets cold, it gets weak. Okay. We could make that as a guess, right? Maybe when it gets cold, it gets weak. You know, I get cold, I get weak. So <clears throat> before I got my attitude changed from my dog. <laughs> but then how could we test that? And there's a lot of ways to test the strength of a magnet. There's fancy physics laboratory methods that are very precise. But then there's science fair at home projects. Uh, for example, one of the things that I do when I want to test the strength of a magnet, I get a screwdriver and I stick the magnet to the screwdriver and then I have a little dish full of tacks, little teeny nails, and I see how many it will pick up. If it's a really strong, and, and I try different magnets, if I try a real strong, it'll pick up a whole mess of them. One of my magnets will pick them all up. But a normal magnet will just pick up one or two. And I have one magnet, put it there, and it will kind of make one stand up, but it won't lift it. So you can test it by how much they'll lift. You can also test it by putting the north pole towards you of one magnet and then taking the one you want to test and seeing how you put a ruler on the table, see how close you get to your other magnet before it starts to slide away. That tells you how strong it is. Mm -hmm. so, and you could come up with other ideas of how you can measure how strong. See how hard it is to pull apart. By the way, if you're going to do the pull apart test, you might want to put a piece of cardboard between them when you start because when they touch, they get really strong. So don't quite let them touch. Put them on two sides of a piece of cardboard and then see how hard they are to pull apart. And if you're real fancy, you could get a little gauge so when you pull on it, it measures how hard you're pulling. So you can do a whole science fair about whether or not a magnet gets weak when it gets cold. 
Now, my hypothesis on that is it's the opposite. I, I'm thinking that when a magnet gets cold, it gets stronger, gets more powerful. Yeah, so if you take a magnet, let it sleep overnight outside or in the deep freeze. If you're in Florida, put it in the freezer. <laughs> Here, just leave it outside. And then do a test and compare it to a test you did when it was room temperature and see if you can tell a difference. You might also warm a magnet. Get some nice warm water, drop the magnet into it till it heats up, pull it out. You probably don't want to put it on the stove, especially not a rare earth magnet, it'll ruin it. In fact, too much heat will ruin any magnet, which is kind of interesting. But wouldn't it be interesting if the magnet got noticeably stronger when it was cold mm -hmm. and noticeably weaker when it cooled off. That would be a wonderful science fair project. But if you don't love magnets, then that's not your project. But if you love music and art and things like that, how does it, we have a lot of students who are very passionate about music and art. And Do you really believe that or are you just being social? Does your science fair project have to be centered around science? Like, for example, on my passion about music, can I do something that is certain or centered around that? Mm -hmm. For example, <laughs> dancing robots. That's centered around music and arts and mm -hmm. dance. But of course, there are so many experiments that you can do with music and with instruments. One interesting one would be to study the sound waves, the frequency of sound waves. Mm -hmm. And again, depends on your age. If you're a little older, maybe you ought to get yourself a job and buy an affordable little oscilloscope so that you can hook a microphone up to your oscilloscope and then, like if you have a violin or a guitar, you strum a string and it vibrates and makes a sound wave. And on the oscilloscope, you can see exactly what frequency those waves are. And then you can try making tones of different frequencies, and maybe you'll be able to discover why if you put two tones out, it can be very annoying, even painful, and yet if you change the frequency just a little bit into what we call a chord, then it sounds sweet and uplifting. Why? Why does one feel good? Why does one make, and you can do the same thing with the piano. If you go to one of the black keys and one of the white keys right next to it, so they're touching, and you hit them both at the same time, brow, brow, you get a sound that'll drive you nutty. And you can do it with any white key and any black key. And if you got two white keys that are right together with nothing between them, like no black key, like there are some, it sounds terrible. Those are half steps, and they fight. And, and your brain says, stop it! <laughs> Why? Yeah. So there's a lot of fun things that you can study. And in the process, if you really get into that, you may find out exactly how to be a really, really great musician or a composer or who knows what. So science, proje science projects need to be about something that you're passionate about. And learning about that subject is a science fair project. I mean, especially for younger students just saying, okay, I really want to learn about frogs. 
I want to, for my science fair project, I want to learn everything about frogs. So you read books, you read the internet, you study, you catch frogs, you talk to them. <laughs> are you really a frog or are you just under a curse and you're really a prince? <laughs> you, you just really enjoy it and you keep careful notes in your science notebook and put it all together and then you put up your poster and you tell people all these interesting things about frogs. Have you ever taken the temperature of a frog? You know, we have those new, new thermometers that you don't have to put in your mouth. You mm -hmm. just shoot, put, aim them at the forehead. Well, Not what if you did that at a frog? <laughs> Why do they say that frogs are cold-blooded? Why do some people say, I'm cold-blooded? Do they really? I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> anyway, frogs go to the temperature of their environment. So if they're in cool water and you measure their temperature, they're going to be cool. And same thing with snakes. And so when snakes are cold, they're real sluggish. And they get warmed up and then they start speeding up. Well, you could actually take their temperature and, and see how it changes, and you can watch them, see if they behave different. You seem to know a lot about snakes and frogs. <laughs> talking to me? Yeah, talking to you. It's like, wow. I learned early in life that you need to be respectful of others, and I was taught that by snakes and frogs. <laughs> really? Yeah. Did they tell you that? Well, I love to read books because as a great teacher said filming one of our brand new courses that's coming out that uh, with a book and your imagination you can open the book and go to amazing wonderful places mm. well I got a book about frogs and snakes and it was it was a neat book and I read it I just loved it because it told you all about them told you where they lived what they did what they ate and it said and where you find them. And I found out where you could go out in the wild to catch snakes. And I, it even told you how to catch them. And be careful that some, of, some snakes have real sharp ends. <laughs> They're venomous, and, yeah. but most don't. And, and then there's frogs and how you catch frogs and you tell whether they're a toad or a frog. And I learned all of this. And then it said one really good way to carry snakes and frogs that you catch, like if you go out on a field trip, is you just take an old pillowcase. And when you catch a snake, just put him in there. You catch a frog, put him in there, and you can put him in this pillowcase. <laughs> and so I'm pretty sure there's a pillowcase on my bed. So I, an old I rescued the bed. pillowcase and I headed for the nearby river. And uh, oh I found a frog and I did end up getting wet. So I stepped in the river catching it, but I got it and I put it in my, <laughs> in my pillowcase and it worked. And then I found a garter snake. You know, those are little snakes that have a yellow stripe. It, we used to say that a garter snake with a yellow stripe was called a yellow racer. And they seemed to be faster than the regular garter snakes. But I caught one, put it in the bag, and caught another frog. And went, 
we had a place down by the river we called the Frog Ponds. It was just these old ponds off the side of the river, and I went around and caught all the frogs, a lot of little <laughs> ones, big ones, and pretty soon I have a bag about this full oh, goodness. of snakes and frogs oh, thrown on my shoulder, just like they showed in the book. <laughs> went back home. When I got home, my blessed mother was mother. sweeping the front porch of our house. <laughs> Hi. Where you been? Oh, down, down exploring. What's in the bag? Uh, and suddenly, I was feeling really awkward. <laughs> and I says, well, just some things that I caught. Just some things that I caught. And she said, what's in the bag? And she says, things I caught. And I said, is that your pillowcase? <laughs> and she said, you dump that stuff out of there right now. So I dumped it right out oh. on the front porch. And snakes and frogs just went <laughs> And my, my dear, dear mother. So be careful when you read things to realize that certain pillowcases are not the ones they're talking about in the book. But books open the door to so many wonderful things that you can do. And you don't have to change the world with your first science fair. But if you start really getting into something as a little scientist, then you're on your way. The best way to learn science is to learn from those that have gone on before. Go f learn from the scientists that have already learned what you want to know and learn everything that they can tell you. Only then... Can you advance science to the next step? You have to catch up with all the people that have been working in science. And the best way to do that is to learn right from them. Remember when it was said that a magician shows you, but won't tell you how, a scientist shows you, and that's how. <laughs> well, scientists are that way. They love to share the knowledge. They love the excitement of discovery. And so especially during some of your early science fair projects, you might want to have the whole science fair project to be to learn all you can about frogs or about dragonflies or about butterflies or about, hmm. I did one other science fair project that I do not recommend, and I'll just leave this as a, a no-go zone. Do you guys get that? That's a I read another zone. book. And it was telling about the power of suggestion. Yeah, this is a no-go zone. This is no-go, okay? Power of suggestion. And they said that you can say things to people and you can really cheer them up or you can say things to people and make them really discouraged. And we probably shouldn't talk. We could talk about the, the cheering I, up part. I would, I would just say <laughs> that I'm not real proud about this, but I didn't know at the time. I just... So I had a wonderful seventh grade English teacher, and the book said, you know, get organized, so I asked all my friends. So when you see Miss Nelson today, just say, hi, are you, are you feeling okay? <laughs> and so we all did. And I even went further, I went across the hall to Mr. Grosbeck, the uh, <clears throat> geography teacher, and I said, hey, I'm doing this experiment. When you see Miss Nelson today, will you just ask her if she's feeling okay? 
So we went in. When I got in, third period, went in. Miss Nelson, are you okay? I'm fine. Why is everybody <laughs> asking me? I'm just wondering. She went home sick. And since then, I felt sick. When she came back, I had to go up and apologize to her. I also apologized to her that one time I left my little mouse that was for my book report. That one time. <laughs> I love that, that one time. Enough, enough of that. But anyway, now science we changed. <laughs> is interesting. Science is fun. And if you think a little bit of science is great, wait till you get in deep. Pick out things in science that you're most interested in and then just drive in deep and deep and deep and deep. And if you have Salus uh, Gold, which you do, write a book about it. Uh, I think we're getting ready to start publishing the very first student-written books on a Salus Gold in the worldwide library so that people will be able to see them. Wow. And some of these books are absolutely amazing. I mean, we have some wonderful young authors, and writing those books is a great thing. We're going to figure out a way to give a special award to people that have a book published in the World Wide Library. And remember, when you write a book, to get it published, you need to have your parent look it over, make sure that it's ready to be published. Uh, most parents will say, you know what, maybe you should fix this and that and that and that and that. And then they go ahead and submit it. Parents submit them for consideration. But then they can be published in the Sales Library for everybody to see, which is really fun. Okay, well now I want to get back to uh, uh, Mr. Lear for just a minute. Remember, Mr. Lear was the guy that really led me down the path of realizing that through science I could change the world in a way that would be felt all around the world, which is really pretty exciting. I want to show you a picture of Bill Lear and his wife, Moya. And in this picture, they're sitting in front of a painting up on the wall. And this is what the Learjet was then. It was a drawing. It didn't exist, but in Bill's mind it did. And he could figure out exactly what he was going to do with it and how it was going to change the world and how you'd be able to fly over storms. and. Uh, and he uh, literally uh, made that goal, and then he built that airplane. This is a, a model of a Learjet. It's a beautiful little airplane, and it's got a lot of power. It's got these two big jet turbine engines, and boy, when, when you put the power of those engines, this little plane just shoots like a bullet, and it's really a lot of fun. Um, let me show you uh, a picture of a Learjet. Uh, here's what they look like in flight. And just think, uh, these things shoot as fast as an airline, almost the speed of sound. And they can take you where you want to go safely, and they can take you there very fast. But there's, uh, <clears throat> there's a little story that I, I want to tell you about Mr. Lear and about his Learjet. He loved that airplane. He loved the fact that a Learjet was one of the few airplanes that could just shoot straight up. It had so much power, it could just go straight up. Most airplanes had kind of climb. He could just point straight up, hit the power, and, and go. 
And the day that he came to pick me up, which was like, I think, 10 days after I met him, he came and picked me up to take me back to his uh, laboratory. And, and I'll just show you. Here's Mr. Lear the day we met. And right in the middle there, the gentleman is Dr. Leo Vernon. He was the vice president of the university. He's the one that introduced me to Bill Lear. And we'd just shown him the uh, hydrogen laboratory. And then we took him outside and showed him the world's first hydrogen car. And you can see that I'm standing there on the bumper and, and there's Mr. Lear uh, looking in the back at my, my little brother who's at least twice as tall as I am. <laughs> and he was the throttle operator and he was back there by the trunk and when I said power, he would turn it up because it wasn't hooked up to the gas pedal back in those very, very early days. But Mr. Lear then uh, decided that I was the one that he wanted to pass on the wisdom that he learned from Mr. Thomas Edison himself. And so uh, just, just over a week later, we were taking off from the airport, and I was going to go back and actually work with him every day and stay in his home, and I was in for a really, really amazing adventure. When I climbed up in the airplane, um, Bill Lear was flying it. He had a co-pilot, a uh, guy named Gunner. And uh, down the aisle between the seats in the back, there were wires and these electronic boxes. And he says, this is the next generation autopilot. Bill Lear was the inventor of the autopilot. And this was going to be a new autopilot he was going to do in the plane. Now. In the front of the airplanes, the pilot on the left and the co-pilot on the right, looking forward, and then right behind the pilot's chair, there was a chair going the other way. They called it the jump seat. And you pull this seat down and sit on it. So he was looking that way and I was looking this way, except I was looking around the door watching because I wanted to see everything. And so we went out to the end of the runway and then he put on the brakes and he started to rev up those jet engines. And as he started to rev it up, the plane started to quiver a little bit, and then more, and it was shaking. And then when he got it up to full power, it was actually jumping forward on the brakes because it was so powerful. When he got everything going just like he wanted, he let go of the brakes. And I was facing backwards, <laughs> and thank goodness I had a seatbelt on. But the plane just took off like a, like a bullet, the G-force was amazing. And just a little ways down the runway, he took off and leveled out at about 10 feet above the ground. Hmm. And when he leveled out, he then adjusted the flaps on the wings and the landing gear folded up underneath, the flaps pulled up. The uh, pilot says he cleaned up the airplane because those are things you do when you're taking off and landing. It's nice to have wheels when you land, but when you're flying, they cause drag and they slow the plane down. So he got all cleaned up, and then at the end of the runway, he pointed straight up. And it was just unbelievable. Now I had gravity pulling me down, and I had the acceleration pulling me down, and I had a grin <laughs> from ear to ear. Going straight up. And then Bill Lear says, this is the only private commercial airplane in the world that can do this, and it really was. 
So tonight, as you're dreaming about what you're going to do for the science fair and what wonderful lessons we're having, I'd like to leave you with this little takeoff from Bill Lear. This is how Bill Lear takes off the Learjet. You see the flaps down there on the wing. He's heading out to the runway and uh, he's taxiing like he's in a hurry. These little sporty looking airplanes out on the tips of the wings are where they carry some more fuel. So now, as he decides to get going here, he's going to have to get this airplane off the ground. Now he's off, oh. and now he decides, why don't we go up? <laughs> and steeper, and steeper, and steeper, and steeper, and steeper. And until you've done it, uh, you don't really know what a roller coaster ride is. I want to do it. <laughs> We'll see you next time. Thank you. Yeah.